Father, we thank you for reminders this morning from the reading of Scripture, from song, from prayer, from testimony and baptism of your wondrous grace of our amazing Savior. Thank you, Father, for the provision of this Savior, the one who was the second member of the Trinity, not second in that he is of lower importance, for he has all the fullness of deity in him. He is co-eternal and co-existent with you and has been for all of eternity. He is fully God in every sense, undiminished deity, and He took on manhood. We've heard those words so many times, but there is a weight of glory behind them that it is impossible for our finite minds to comprehend just how great a humiliation that was for him. He did it with joy so that he might redeem us, so that we might learn the joys of praising him. And thank you, Father, that he not only came, he not only lived a sinless life, he not only fulfilled the righteousness demanded by the law, He not only was crucified on our behalf, He not only was resurrected, He not only is ascended into glory, He not only is at your right hand right now, He not only, He not only is now praying for us, advocating for us, but Father, He's coming back. What glorious news this is. Might that be a bomb to our hearts this morning. For we, as always, need your comfort, need your strength, need your joy, need satisfaction in you. And might the assurance of his soon return to take his people home with him be our joy this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was in early to mid-November that I first saw my sign of, a sign of Christmas this year. I, I was spending about two minutes on Facebook and scrolled down and saw somebody's family video and watched the video. I rarely watch those things, but on this occasion it looked cute, so I watched it. And at the end of the video, there it was. In early November, two weeks before Thanksgiving, in a massive faux pas, a Christmas tree. My daughter would say I'm being grinchly again. But there are just certain things you can't do before Thanksgiving, and a Christmas tree is one of them. <laughs> you and me, Carol. <laughs> And it was about that same time that Regine and I began to notice Christmas lights on houses all around town. And it seems that that there were people around town that are trying to find some reason for joy this Christmas season. 
in a, in a year that's been complicated by COVID and political contentiousness and the standard problems of financial struggles and relational difficulties and illness and death, it seems that people are particularly looking for something joyful this year. It's hard to find joy right now, isn't it? The secular Christmas tunes like, It's the most wonderful time of the year. Silver bells. It's a holly jolly Christmas. Here comes Santa Claus and even Feliz Navidad. Just, just frankly ring a little bit hollow, don't they? Even some of our biblical Christian hymns are difficult to sing. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. I will affirm the world is weary. You look in the world, there's not much rejoicing, is there? Amid the twinkling lights, I see despondent hearts and discouraged souls and people missing Christmas. I don't want to miss Christmas, and I don't want you to miss Christmas either. So over three messages that I began two weeks ago and then today and culminating on Christmas Eve, I want us to be reminded of Christ's greatness, Christ's supremacy, through a passage that is hardly considered a typical Christmas passage, but it is a passage that exalts our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is the passage we began looking at two weeks ago, Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. The last time as we looked at verses 4 through 6, we were exhorted to delight in Christ because of His infinite uniqueness that was demonstrated in His advent. This morning, we are compelled to worship Christ because of His authority and His victory in His second coming. John will say it this way, Delight in Christ because He has come and is coming in victorious authority. Delight in Christ because He not only has come, but He is coming and He will come in victory and authority. I acknowledge that revelation and the second coming of Christ and eschatology, the doctrine of last things, are not typical, thing, typical topics for a Christmas message. But His first coming is completed through His second coming. The hope that was made certain at His first advent and the cross is realized in His second advent. For those of us who are weary and burdened and discouraged and despondent, it's the second coming for which we are living. The second coming is our goal. The first advent, Christmas, finds its fulfillment in the second advent, Christ's return. Just as Christmas doesn't mean anything without Easter, so Christmas does not mean anything without Christ's soon return. So in this passage, the Apostle John will give us four reminders of the greatness of the Christ who is coming. Four reminders of Christ's greatness, four reminders of His authority, four reminders of His exaltedness. 
The first of these is given to us at the beginning of verse 7. The Christ who came is coming with authority. The Christ who came is coming with authority. Last time I noticed, noted that a number of commentators have called this chapter one of the most Christological chapters in Scripture. It stands there with Isaiah 53 and Matthew 1 and Matthew 24 and 25 and Matthew 27 and 28, Colossians 1, Ephesians 1. This is a heavily Christological chapter, and in this chapter and in this book, this verse, verse 7, has been called the key and the theme of the book. This is, this is the center of this chapter. This is the heart of this chapter and the heart of this book. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. As John begins this verse, we might understand the word behold to mean something like, look, pay attention. And that's true. That is what he wants us to do. He wants us to be focused on the words that follow after that. But there's something else going on as well. In verse 7, he's quoting from Daniel chapter 7, and behold is part of that text. And the word behold, as it's used particularly by the Old Testament prophets, denoted an oracle. That is, God is speaking. God is declaring. God is revealing something about himself and something about the future. It is a divine declaration to which he wants us to pay particular attention So when John says, behold, he is reminding, here comes the revelation of God. Here comes the revelation of something of himself. And what is that revelation? The revelation is that he is coming. This again is a quotation from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And the verb that he uses here, is coming, is a present tense but it's being used with a, with a future aspect. So he is coming, but it also, the sense is that he will come. And he uses the present tense because the sense is that it already has been inaugurated. It's already been initiated. The, the certainty of his coming in the future is so certain that we can even speak of it as happening now. He is right now, already coming. It's been initiated. It is, even at this moment, happening. His return is imminent. It is possible at any moment. And Daniel the prophet and John the apostle would have us to be preoccupied, preoccupied in anticipating Christ coming and breaking through in the cloud and with the cloud so that we might see him. And this return of Jesus Christ is one of, one of the key themes in the book. It's how the book begins. Behold, he is coming. And it's how the book ends. We've already drawn attention to it. Chapter 22, verse 7. Behold, he says, I am coming quickly. Verse 13. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. 
He who testifies to these things says, yes, verse 20, I am coming quickly. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. Everything from chapter 1 to chapter 22 is about the return of Jesus Christ. Yes, he has left, but he is coming. John, as he is imprisoned on Patmos, finds confidence in this. John, as he pens this revelation, wants the readers to find confidence in this. And brothers and sisters, he would have us to be confident in this as well. Yes, he has ascended. Yes, he is now bodily in heaven. But brothers and sisters, he has not abandoned us. He is coming and he will come just as surely as he has left. Jesus has ascended to heaven. But he did not go there to stay there. He left there, left here to go there to prepare a place for us so that he might come back and get us to be with him eternally. And to emphasize the certainty of Jesus' return, John says that he is coming with the clouds. And that's a That's, excuse me, a quotation, as I noted earlier, from Daniel chapter 7. Listen to what Daniel the prophet says in verses 13 and 14 of that chapter. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days... And he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." In this passage, the Son of Man is one who is not just a man. It is obviously a reference to the Messiah. And he has access to the heavenly throne of God. He goes up to the Ancient of Days, God the Father. He is presented to God the Father. And God the Father grants him a gift. He gives him dominion. That is, he gives him a domain. He gives him a kingdom. But it's not just as an earthly ruler that he gives him, but he gives him a dominion and a kingdom that also comes with glory so that all the peoples of all the earth of all times will forever serve him and glorify him and honor him. His kingdom is not a kingdom that will last for a brief time. His kingdom is one... Daniel says, which will not pass away. It is eternal and it is indestructible. John would have us to understand from Daniel 7 that there is authority and power in Jesus. He is coming in the clouds as the Son of Man, as the chosen Messiah of God to set up His eternal throne, His eternal kingdom. To say that he's returning with the clouds is also a reminder of his departure, isn't it? That's why we read Acts chapter 1 earlier. He left in the clouds, 
and he is returning in the clouds. And do you notice a difference, though, between his departure and his return? In his departure, the clouds hid him. In his return, the clouds reveal him. They're revelatory. He's no longer hidden from sight, but he is revealed to us. In the scriptures, these clouds are often identified with the revelation of God and his heavenly majesty. So we see that as as the cloud leads Israel through the wilderness. We see that as the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is taken up into glory in the clouds with Christ. The clouds reveal the glory, the power, the majesty of God. And when he comes, he'll come with the clouds to reveal his greatness and his authority. So Christ is coming again. We might expect him to come back in the same way as he left. We're creatures of habit, aren't we? When I go home at the end of the day, I almost always go back the very same way every single day. It's really quite tedious at times. And you probably do the same thing. When I get up in the morning, I have a routine. When I go to bed at night, I have a routine. And we might expect that Jesus would come back in the same way that he came the first time. Ah, but there's a vast difference between his first coming and his second coming. His first coming was in lowliness, in humility. His second coming is not lowly, but glorious, majestic. His first coming was private. Few saw him when he arrived. His second coming will be public and all will see him. His first coming, some pierced him. Many rejected him. At his second coming, he might have been rejected by men the first time in the second coming. He will reject men and he will judge those who have rejected him. In his first coming, there was rejoice over his defeat. In his second coming, there will be mourning about his victory. Both of his advents were with authority. But brothers and sisters, his second advent will particularly demonstrate his authoritative judgment power. His authority in judging all men will be apparent to all. He is coming with the clouds and all will see him, even those who pierced him. Of what benefit is this return of Christ to us? G.K. Chesterton said, quote, it's never been enough to say that God is, is, excuse me, it's never been enough to say that God is in his heaven and all is right with the world. God has left his heaven to set it right, end quote. And from this verse, Revelation 1-7, we can also add, and he will leave his heaven again to set all things right fully and finally. That's the benefit to us. Whatever the pressures, whatever the burdens of these days, and there are many, 
as there always have been many pressures and many burdens and many weights, we are confident in the reality that just as Christ came once, He will come again. The first Advent, Christmas, has set the table for the second, final, and permanent coming of Christ. When He comes again, He will come authoritatively, powerfully, and righteously. Secondly, the Christ who is coming is, the Christ who came is coming inescapably, inescapably. Notice the middle of verse 7. And every eye will see him. We've already noted at his first coming, just a few people saw him. Mary, Joseph, the shepherds. A few weeks later, Simeon and Anna, a few people in the temple. A few weeks after that, perhaps a couple of months, the Magi. Just a few people saw him at his first advent. Notice what the text says. At his second advent, every eye will see him. At his second coming, everyone will see him. This does not mean that everyone will see him at the exact same moment or that everyone will physically see his arrival. But it is to say that everyone, believer and unbeliever alike, will see and understand his arrival. They will be compelled to affirm his greatness and his authority. At his first coming, some, many... Most rejected him. So John writes in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 11, He came to his own, his own creation, and his own, his own people rejected him, did not accept him. At his second coming, everyone will be compelled to affirm his authority and his righteousness even those who pierced him. And those who pierced him doesn't just refer to those who physically crucified him. It does include those, obviously, those who put him to death. But it refers to all of those who pierced him with their sin. It it refers to all of those who put him to death because of their sin. It refers to all of those who were guilty of his death. When he came the first time, It appeared that some had rebelled and escaped his wrath. When he returns the second time, it will be immediately apparent that there is no escaping him. This is what Paul affirms and speaks of in Philippians chapter 2. At the name of Jesus, verse 10, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no escaping Christ. Every eye will see Him. Every eye behold Him. Every eye understand that He is Lord, that He is majestic, that He is glorious. It's not just a babe in a manger. It's not a powerless infant. It is the eternal, 
infinite, majestic, on high God. One of my first semesters in college, I'm sure this never happened to any of you, but I had a science class that I took just a tad bit less seriously than I should have. The professor was boring. He was one of those guys that would just show up, open the textbook, and start reading. I tried. I Really, I did. I tried to stay awake. But, but I was one of those guys that fell asleep on a consistent basis, sometimes trying to write notes in mid-sentence even. And it was spring. And I was in Florida. And I lived about two miles from the beach. And one day it just seemed like the beach seemed a much more reasonable thing to do than go to class. So I went to the beach. I came back to class the next day and uh, or the next week. Walk into the hallway, everybody's quiet. I thought, that's kind of weird. Everybody's quiet. We're all, usually always talking. Go into class, sit down, everybody head down. I turned to the guy next to me and said, what's going on? Why is everybody so quiet today? Exam today. We're all cramming. Exam? Today? When did he say that? Last class? When I was at the beach. <laughs> I'll never forget my response. My, my immediate response was, I'm out of here. See you later. <laughs> so I walked out of that class hoping the prof hadn't seen. And I was going to say, in God's grace, I'm not sure it was really God's grace, but anyway, he, he does take care of those who are foolish, and I was foolish. I left class. He didn't see me, but there was still a reckoning. There was still an exam that needed to be made up. There was still a C that was coming in a class that should have been an easy A. Brothers and sisters, just as I couldn't escape that professor, and in a far greater sense, There's no escaping the Lord of glory when He returns. It's not just that every eye will see Him. It's that He will see every eye. And He knows. There's no pretense of escaping Christ. He is gone, but He is not unaware. He is in heaven, but He is not disconnected from what is happening on earth. Other kings are giving pretense to having authority, but when he comes, everyone will acknowledge his great, final, and supreme authority. Oh, brothers, this is, this is a great comfort to us who are in Jesus Christ, but it is also a great warning to those who reject Christ. He will not be avoided. The babe in the manger will not be escaped. All men will have to deal with him, as the writer to Hebrews says in chapter 4. Says one commentator, they shall not escape him. They must each and all someday confront him and meet his all-penetrating gaze. From the wretched man who betrays him down to the soldier who pierced his side and all who have made common cause with them in wronging, persecuting, wounding, and insulting that meek Lamb of God shall then be compelled to face his judgment seat and to look upon him whom they have pierced. He came 
And he is coming inescapably. Thirdly, the Christ who came is coming with judgment. He's coming with judgment. Notice the middle of the verse. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. When Paul says, excuse me, when John says all the tribes of the earth, he is referring to all the people groups on the earth. When we see that word tribes, we typically think about the tribes of Israel, but he's moving beyond that. And he's talking about all the people groups and all the nations and all the countries and all the world. In other words, there is no one anywhere who will escape the coming of Christ. There is no one anywhere who will escape Christ's coming. It is not just that He is coming, but that He is coming to do a work that cannot be escaped, that cannot be avoided. He is coming in judgment. They will seek to escape it. They will seek to run from Him, but they will not be able to escape this babe, this lamb, This lion, this king, his first advent was as a sovereign savior. His second advent is as a sovereign ruler and judge. We, We see an attempt to escape Christ in Revelation chapter 6. God has opened the sealed judgments. And they are terrifying to the people of the earth so that they long to die. Verse 15, chapter 6, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, of his of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? If only we could die, and they cannot. His judgment is against all who rebel, and it is inescapable. And so John says they will mourn over him. They will mourn over him. We might read that and say, well, that's good news. They're grieved. They're brokenhearted over their sin. And they're going to repent and confess and trust Christ. And that's not what John has us to understand by that phrase. They mourn over him, but they are lamenting not to the point of repentance. They are lamenting with a worldly sorrow that won't move them to repentance. These are mourners who are beating their chests in lament and sorrow for the loss of their sin and their understanding that they cannot stand before Christ, but they unbelievably continue in their rebellion against God. They cannot repent. They they won't repent. They refuse to repent. How, how, how can I say that? Do I, do I have cause for saying that? I can say that because that's the general pattern of sinners. As the sinners will cling to their sin 
even when their sin is exposed, rather than repent and be humbled before Christ. That's the general pattern, but this is also the pattern that we see in this book. A grief that does not lead to repentance is not unusual. Chapter 6, God begins pouring out His wrath on unbelievers during the tribulation. Chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 tell us that in one judgment, one-fourth of the world's population will die. One-fourth of the world dies. In chapter 9, there's another judgment that comes that kills, it tells us in verse 15, a third of mankind. So in the first, in the first judgment, one-fourth is gone. Now we're down to 75%. And the next judgment, a third is gone. So that 75 is taken down to 50% of the world's population. What's the population of the world now? About 8 billion? 4 billion people gone in two judgments. And you have to say, well, that's going to capture people's attention. Verse 20, chapter 9. The rest of mankind, the one out of two who were left, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons, the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor their thefts. What's the implication? We want our idols. We don't care if we have to die for them. We want our idols. We want our sin. We will not repent. Funeral homes are filled up. One out of two people is in a funeral home or in a grave. We will not repent. The same thing is repeated at the end of the tribulation. And those judgments, chapter 16, verse 9, men were scorched with first fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give Him glory. Verse 11, And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Verse 21, And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. We will blaspheme God. We will not not repent. Chapter 1, verse 7. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. They're grieved, but not to the point of repentance. Here is, I wrote in my notes, a strong warning that doesn't begin to capture it, does it? Here is the weightiest of warnings against hardened and dead consciences. God is patient. Verse 21 of chapter 2, I gave her time to repent. 
And she does not want to repent of her immorality. I gave her time. Oh, God is so patient towards sinners. So benevolent towards sinners. He's waiting for sinners to repent. But don't misunderstand. That patience does not mean he does not care about sin. He will judge and he will be unrelenting in pouring out his wrath. Listen carefully. His patience for sinners is long, but it's not eternal. His judgment for sinners is eternal. When we read this phrase, (laughs) this is about that seven-pound baby that was born some 2,000-plus years ago now, and they pierced him. And he will come in righteous wrath and judgment. Don't disconnect the harmless baby of Christmas from this righteously angry, omnipotent authority in heaven. They are one in the same. And when Christ comes next, He will come in judgment and it will be inescapable. I say it's inescapable. There is one escape, isn't there? And the escape is to look on Him who was pierced in faith and trust. And brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sin, if you are, if you are resistantly, persistently, obsessively holding on to your sin and say, I must have my sin, I must have my sin, I must have my sin. Oh, here, there's no escape except to go to Him who can liberate you from that idolatry which will never satisfy you ultimately. He can liberate you and He can free you and He will. If you simply say, would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? Would you wash me? Would you make me a new person so that I might live for you and live to enjoy you? Oh, brothers and sisters, that is a means of escape. That is the means out of sin and judgment. It is to believe in the God-man, Jesus Christ, the one who came in the flesh. And the one who came as a baby. And the one who is coming back as authoritative judge and king. The Christ who came is coming with judgment. Fourthly, the Christ who came is coming truly. Notice the end of the verse. So it is to be. Amen. That phrase literally is simply two words. Yes. Amen. And the word amen is taken from the Hebrew. Amen. And it means truly. 
or truth. This is John's emphatic and vigorous way to say, this is the way it will be. There's no altering this plan. God through Christ is victorious and authoritative. And there is a sense in which that should be solemn and sobering. Judgment will not be avoided. So one commentator says, Brethren, it does seem to me when I look at the scriptures on this subject that even the best of us are not even half awake. May God arouse us by His Spirit and not permit us to sleep till the thunders and terrors of the great day are upon us. Oh, we need to be awake. He's coming with power, authority, and judgment. But there's also a reality in which that coming for the believer is joyful. As harsh and as terrible as Christ's judgment will be to the wicked, God's exclamation point, yes, amen, is that he is not only intolerant of unrighteousness and sin, but that there is no sin that will escape judgment. And brothers and sisters, that's a comfort for us. Has sin been committed in 2020? Yes, just like every other year. Has sin been committed in relation to COVID? Has sin been committed by governmental leaders in relation to COVID? I'm not making a political statement here. I'm simply addressing the reality of men's hearts. Yes. Has unrighteousness happened in relation to COVID? Yes. Has unrighteousness happened this year apart from COVID? Oh, yes. Has unrighteousness happened to you this year that hasn't been able to be resolved, that hasn't been able to be fixed? Yes. Has sufferings and trials happened this year? Have relationships been broken? Have you experienced weariness of body and soul? Have you experienced the pressures of responsibilities, the constant battles with temptation? Have you experienced illness and death? I got another email. We got another email through the church email chain the other day. I came home and Ray Jean said, It's overwhelming how many of our parents are passing away and going to glory. (laughs) And they're not COVID-related for the most part. Some are, but most are not. And it's just this this pervasiveness, the, the unrelentingness of these weak and frail bodies. Where's the Christ of heaven? I'll tell you where he is. He's in heaven. He's ruling. He's reigning. He has the ear of the Father. He is defending us who are his. And brothers, he is coming. The babe is coming as the lion and he will make it right. Have there been things that happened to us this year that have not been right? Yes. 
Have we been anxious over them? Yes, I have lost more sleep this year than I think in any other year in my life. And He's going to make it right. We can trust Him. We can rest in Him. He has come. And He is coming again as righteous King. Over the years, I've noticed that many of our favorite Christmas hymns don't stop with the birth of Christ, but they inevitably make their way to the cross of Christ. Some of them not only don't stop with the cross of Christ, but they move to the kingship and the reign and the return of Christ. At his feet, the six-winged seraph, cherubim, with sleepless eye, veil their faces to the presence, as with ceaseless voice they cry, Alleluia, Alleluia, Lord Most High. Let's let all mortal flesh. And from he who is in yonder stall, who is he? that from the grave comes to heal and help and save? Who is he that from his throne rules through all the world alone? And of the Father's love begotten, of the Father's love begotten, ere the worlds began to be, he is the Alpha and Omega. He is the source, the ending he, of all the things that are, that have been, and that future years shall see evermore and evermore. Angels from the realms of glory, though an infant now we view him, he shall fill his father's throne. Gather all the nations to him. Every knee shall then bow down. All creation join in praising God the Father, Spirit, Son. Once in royal David city, and our eyes at last shall see him through his own redeeming love. For that child so dear and gentle is our Lord in heaven above And he leads his children on to the place where he is gone. Not in that poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by. We shall see him. But in heaven, set at God's right hand on high. And thou didst leave thy throne. When thy heaven's arches shall ring and her choirs shall sing at thy coming to victory, let thy voice call me up saying, yet there is room, there is room at my side for thee and my heart shall rejoice, Lord Jesus, when thou comest and callest for me. The hymn writer's got it right. Oh, friends, be confident. Christ has come. He's come as a child. And yes, He has ascended to heaven now. But He is making preparations for His soon return to take us home. Christ has come. 
and he is coming. Let us rest in him. Father, thank you for this profound reminder of your glory, your exaltedness, and the exaltedness of our Savior. Yes, he's a babe. Yes, he's been humbled in his first advent. But he is not diminished as God. He is ruling. He will rule. He will reign. We can be confident. We can be, we can trust. Might we trust him? Because we are confident of his soon return. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.